Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to them to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Where are we on our journey to joy? Where are we on this journey? Well, in our reading plans, uh, you have uh, read Psalm 126, hopefully, five times this week, and you are about halfway through your third time on reading through the Psalms of Ascent. Now, what we're going to do is next week, uh, we have Labor Day, so we have no discovery hour, one service. And then after that, we're going to take a break from the Psalms of Ascent and start a new six-week series, Everyone to Everywhere, Our Responsibility and Roles in Getting the Gospel Here, There, and Everywhere. A preface for our World Outreach uh, celebration coming in October. It'll lead us right up to that. And then after that, after the WOC, we'll come back and finish the Psalms of Ascent. And we're really going to look at them as the Psalms of Advent because that's really what they are. Their focus is we're going to see in a moment. They really focus on the city of David, the coming king. And that's what Christmas is all about. So we're going to have a good time with that. So where are we today? Well, you're right there in Psalm 126, and we see today Mount Zion. Mount Zion is in view uh, as we study. This is the seventh of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. We're making progress in our journey to joy. We've come further in, further up and further in in our ascent to the point where now we see Mount Zion in the distance. We see the city of David. We see the palace of, of David the king. We see the temple of the living God. Uh, in these psalms, beginning last week with Psalm 125, Zion is mentioned seven times now. We're headed to our goal, our journey. We see the goal. What Israel did three times a year in a physical and spiritual sense, they went up, they ascended to the city of Jerusalem. They were to go there to be God's people in God's place, worshiping God's presence. What they did three times a year, we are doing spiritually as the people of God today. And one day it's going to become a physical reality for us. One day it's going to become a physical reality and literally the new Jerusalem is going to come down on this earth and we're going to come down with our risen Lord and our joy is going to be fulfilled. Our journey will be done and we're going to be excited. Let me read to you Hebrews 12. It talks about this spiritual reality of this Mount Zion. So this isn't just some... Thing that the Jews did in the old days. It's something that we do as Christians. So listen to Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and best of all, what makes heaven heaven, you've come to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant. That's what we're journeying towards, a spiritual reality that one day is going to be a physical reality. Do you realize that every time we gather as a church, angels are watching in amazement? Okay? And you could, there's a lot of ways you could go with that. You know, amazed at many things. But they are watching. They are watching the worship services. In fact, the Bible tells us we should worship in certain ways in a local church for the very reason because angels are watching. Now, that's just kind of mind-blowing. But let's look at my uh, Psalm 126. Let's read it. Uh, follow along, if you would, as we read Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Then it shifts from praise to a prayer. Restore our captivity, O Lord. As the streams in the south, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All right? So you see in your notes there an overview of the structure of this psalm. It's real simple. Three verses praising, three verses praying. It is a lament. They've seen God restore them in the past, but they need it again. So it's a lament of a faithful community that wants to see God do it again. How many here want to see God do revival again? Amen? Do it again, Lord. That's what this is about. And when God does it again, then it's like a dream come true. Amen? It's like a dream come true. And so you see the structure there. Uh, there's a partial re restoration in the past that they're praising God for, but they're praying now, hey, we're, we need it again, Lord, and they're praying for a future, full, final restoration. Now, reason this is a lament is because this community is looking back and saying, man, I remember when you restored us back here. I remember how great that was. Woo, man, it was wonderful. It was a dream come through. But right now, life's a little bit of a nightmare. And Lord, you need to do it again. We need that restoration. Not only do we need it now, but Lord, we're looking forward to that final, full restoration when shalom comes. Now, if you look in your Bibles, um, uh, many of your translations have verse 1 translated something like this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The New American Standard has it, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. So what's the difference between restoring fortunes and, re and returning the captives? Well, the point is this. Remember the songs of ascent are short and they're not specific. And the reason that's good news, it means... It can be applied to all of our desperate situations. It can be applied to all of our crisis situations. So there isn't any specific, but these words restoring our fortunes is often used in the Old Testament of the return of the Israelites from captivity in Babylon. They were judged by God and sent into captivity, carried away to Babylon, 
and, and used as slaves like Daniel and his three friends. And it was judgment from God for not living like God's people should, for being unfaithful as God's people. In any case, whether this refers directly to the return of the exiles in verses 1 through 3 or some other situation, the point is this. When you're in a tough place and God comes through and rescues you, it's like a dream come true. Look again at verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, or when the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. Now, then he goes on and he says in verse 4, Restore captivity. It's like, wait a minute, I thought you're praising God for being restored. Why are you asking this again? And the reason is, is when the Israelites did return from captivity, they came back in three different ways, uh, waves of people. First, Zerubbabel brought back some, uh, some exiles. Then Nehemiah brought some, and then Ezra brought some. In other words, it wasn't this flood of refugees that had been set free. It was this trickle, a remnant. And the remnant that came back often wasn't very godly. Ezra and Nehemiah had to motivate them to be, uh, to be obedient. Hey, you're back in the land. God's restored you. We, need to, we, we have work to do. Because even after they returned, the number of faithful people was small. The city walls of Zion needed to be rebuilt. They were broken down. The temple worship of Zion needed to be restored under Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, was uh, leading the rebuilding of the walls. The faithful worshipers of Zion needed revival. And they were still surrounded by hostile nations that didn't want them there. And whenever they started building the wall or building the temple, they were scorned, they were slandered. Hey, why are you guys back here? And what's the big deal about being God's people in God's place, worshiping in God's presence? Ah, go away, stop. So, even after being rescued, even after being restored, they could still pray, Lord, you need to do it again. You have more to do. Restore us again. This isn't easy. This is hard. Lord, you've brought us back, but there's so much work to do. In fact, there was many times in their history, just because they were brought back through Babylon, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, God's prophet predicted that after Babylon, there would come the Medes and the Persians. And after the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks would conquer them. And after the Greeks, the Roman Empire would come. So that when the time when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, they're still... They've, it's just been like this. Can you relate to that? Is your life a little bit like that after you've come to Jesus? You get saved, God restores you, and then... You kind of go through a valley and you go, Lord, revive me, do it again. And then you kind of get up on the mountaintop, then you go back down. And the reality is, when Jesus came, they rejected him, didn't they? And when they rejected him, God's judgment fell so that in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and all that's left today is called what? There's one wall that's left. And what is it called? The Wailing Wall. Why? Because they're wailing. And, the, and to this day, 
God's covenant people, the Jews, still come to that wall today. And Christians join them praying for what? Verses 4 through 6. Lord, restore it. Do it again, Lord. Rebuild the temple so that God's people can come to God's place and worship in God's presence. Now, the glorious thing is, in 1948, God did do it again. In 1948, after the people of Israel had been been scattered for all these years, the Third Reich, which is very interesting, the Third Reich was an attempt by Hitler to be a reincarnation of what empire? The Roman Empire. Yeah, and it was going to last a thousand years. I don't think it lasted, we're historians, I don't even think it lasted twelve. But that demonic-inspired effort did kill over 6 million Jews. But then in 1948, God did it again. And God brought back, in a, in a really, truly a gracious, miraculous fashion, He brought back, and once again, the nation of Israel exists to this day. Yet it exists in such a manner as it did Back in when this psalm was written, it's surrounded by Arab nations that are bent on doing what? Pushing them into the sea and wiping them off the face of the earth. But hey, don't think it's the Arabs that are all bad. The nation is there, but the nation of Israel to this day still is a stiff-necked people in rebellion to God. Their God, the God that chose them, the God that set them apart. It's a nation of people that are still rejecting predominantly the Lord Jesus Christ as God's chosen Messiah. And so, yes, you have enemies surrounding you, but the bigger problem, Israel, is in your heart. You're still stiff-necked, rebellious, and we still need to pray, Lord, restore their captivity, restore their captivity. So, in spite of all these ups and downs... One day, Christ is going to come back. The king is going to come. Israel as a nation is going to be at the point where the Antichrist has almost wiped them out from the face of the earth, finally achieving his goal. And at that moment when the knife is at their neck and they don't think they have a hope, Christ and us as his church are going to come down and Israel is going to look up and it's going to dawn on them by God's grace This is the one we crucified. We crucified our Messiah. And they're going to repent as a nation. And God's going to come down and regenerate their hearts, transform their hearts, defeat all their enemies, pour, uh, throw the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the lake of fire, establish his kingdom, restore Jerusalem, restore worship in the temple, enter into the new creation, and man's going to be good. And I just made the biggest understatement you've heard. It's going to be glorious. So this is why we read this psalm. We read this psalm in order to say, Lord, dreams come true when you do it again. And so do it again. And do it again. And do it again until the end. When our journey to joy will one day be done. And so verses 5 through 6, we pray these prayer, this prayer. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, in the Negev, in the desert, 
places. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. So even though we don't know a definite time, we do see a pattern. God restores and we praise him. But we see that we need restoration again, and so we pray to Him. Dreams will come true when God does it again and again until the end. Now, let me be clear. When we're talking about dreams coming true, we're not talking about... Typically what we think in our culture in this country, when we think about dreams coming true, the first thing, whether we consciously think it or not, we think of the American dream. Man... If I just give my life to Jesus, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a spouse. I'm going to get a well-paying job. I'm going to get a, a two to three vehicles. I'm going to get my 401k being Wall Street proof and, and uh, president proof. And uh, it's going to be good. I'm going to have 1.5 kids. I don't know where the .5 comes from, but it, it'll be there. And it's going to be wonderful. And so, okay, I hear you. Dreams come true. When God works in our life. That's not the dream we're talking about. But sadly, we as Christians even replace the American dream with the Christian American dream, which is exactly the same thing I just went through, except I go to church on a regular basis. I get heaven thrown in, and I find a comfortable church, and I have comfortable kids, and everything's comfortable and good. And wow, it's great. The American dream Christianized. Now, the dream here is the dream that I already spoke about from Hebrews 12. The dream is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The dream is the Savior and Lord that I've trusted in but I've never seen. One day we will be face to face and we will be like him. And we will be clothed in his glory and this sin and the sin that I struggle with. And I, I, the temptations I deal with and, and the times that I fail and rebel against God and I live in unbelief, those times are going to be all gone. And there's going to be no more cancer, no more radiation, no more chemo, no more loss of loved ones. It's going to be your kingdom, resurrection power, and glory coming. I want to be clear this morning. That's the dream. Amen? That's the dream. And when God does it again, that dream will be a reality on two levels. So let me give you here two things I want you to think about. First of all, on an individual level, on an individual level, the dream begins to come true when the Lord first redeems us and we're born again from above, having repented of our sins and trusting in Jesus. The dream begins the moment you're born again. Are you born again this morning? If not, you're living a nightmare nightmare of separated from God and missing out on your journey to joy, missing out on the dream coming true. Secondly, it comes true on a universal level, a universal level. You see, right now you can say, it's okay. I don't mind not being a Christian because I still get in all the, all these other things, you know, life's still good. But one day on a universal level, the dream will finally and fully come true in the future when God fully restores all things and His kingdom comes and His will be done and all those who don't know the Lord will be cast forever into eternal punishment. Listen, right now you can get by or at least think you can without Jesus. But there's going to come a day 
when God does it again, and he does it at the end, where there will be no getting by, and it will be an eternity. And listen, we, we don't think about that enough, and we don't weep enough about that. Or we would live differently. Our priorities would be different. Our giving would be different. Our speaking to our friends would be different if we really grasp that reality, that universal level. So, I want to take the rest of our time to look at this psalm in two ways. When you look at this psalm, it shows what our greatest joy should be, and it shows us what our deepest concern should be. So let's take a look at it. The greatest joy and the deepest concern of God's people. What's our greatest joy? It's found in the first three verses, and it's real simple. Here's our greatest joy. Praising God for the reality of our redemption in the past. Our greatest joy should be praising God for the reality of our redemption in the past. And two things I want you to see here. First of all, our redemption is a reality that's better than fantasy. Our redemption is a reality that's better than fantasy. And let me give you two reasons why that's true, because that's a pretty bold statement. So here it is. Two reasons why redemption is a reality better. First of all, the Lord does what only He can do, but what every person was created to experience. Listen, when God redeems you, when you enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's something that the Lord does what only He can do, but what you were designed, created, and on this planet to experience for all of eternity. That's reality that's better than fantasy. Isn't that cool? And this is what they say in verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones, say this, when the Lord brought me out of captivity, I was like those who dream. This, you know, you ever had a time in your life where life was so good? You said, I'm living the dream. You ever had a time in your life where you said, I'm, this is so good. This is good. My dreams are coming true. Pinch me. See if I'm dreaming. You ever had those moments in your life? I have. Uh, I remember as we're getting Amber ready in her senior year, I remember Jerry, Jerry, who's still alive and kicking, uh, took me on a, uh, a youth trip, drove me all the way to Liberty, check out Liberty. I can tell you, actually, the place I was standing, all the dorms are obliterated and skyscraping dorms are there now. But I know where I was standing, Jerry. I remember looking out over this, this campus, which seemed really big at the time and now is, you know, super large. But I remember thinking, this is where I belong. This is it. This is where I need to be. Now, when you're a goober, oh, excuse me, Tyler, new, new guest here calling you a goober. When you're a, a, a goobery uh, 18-year-old kid, uh, knowing where you're going to college is a big thing, okay? You know, you're like, this is dreams come true. Yeah, when you're 18 and you just got saved at 17, you're like, woo I know where God wants me to be. And it was where God wanted me to be. And it's where then I met my wife. I remember getting my acceptance letter to Dallas Seminary. It was a dream come true. I remember our wedding day with, I needed to get this in or I'd be in trouble. I remember with, beyond my wife. Uh, I remember our wedding day and uh, all the pictures. I'm just like, a, I look drunk. 
but I wasn't, Aaron. I, I looked drunk because I, I, I was just like, this is pinch me. This is a dream come true. Uh, and then I remember when we found out Gwen was pre- uh, pregnant after seven years of, of, of trying to have a kid. Remember, I was discipling Todd. I said, Todd, it's just unbelievable. And, of course, when God restores your captivity in that manner, you look back and go, man, I should have trusted him more. Why did I ever? I mean, one of my things, I said, Todd, I just should have prayed more. And believe me, we prayed a lot. But you're like, man, God, I, you know, you can do this. Remember holding her and dedicating her. Uh, but best of all, was August 19th, 1979, when at this church I settled my salvation. I remember the joy and just, this is what I've been searching for 17 years and I didn't know because unless God reveals it to you, unless the gospel is presented, unless you're in a Bible-believing, preaching church like this is, you're not going to know that there's a God-shaped hole that only He can fulfill. You see, being restored to a personal relationship with the Lord, it's where your sins are forgiven, it's where your heart is changed, and it's where you begin to discover what you were created for by getting to know the one who created you. Amen? It's a glorious thing. Oh, yeah, and Becky was at Liberty. That was a dream come true, too, because she typed all my papers for free, which, which Amber still wants to turn me in for, for abuse, you know, for slave labor. But I said, she's my friend. She wanted to do that. Didn't you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what she did. She did. It was really funny. Our two dorms were, and there's uh, those dorms still exist. And uh, we were right there, and I'd, I'd write a page and run down, and, and we'd meet there in the middle because it, it, we you couldn't hang out with uh, girls. And so I'd have to hand it to her, and then she'd run up. And anyway, I'm, I digress. So we need the I am God. Listen, this is what the Lord does. Only the Lord does these things. Only the Lord, the ever-present Redeemer, the Promise Keeper who keeps his promises, who's there to restore your captivity of sins. Listen, that's a reality that's better than the fantasies of sin, the fantasies of unbelief, the fantasies of this world, the fantasies of this election where everything's being promised and nothing will come through. Jesus Christ is the Lord, the promise keeper. Amen? That's just good stuff. Secondly, The Lord works. The reason this is a reality better than fantasy. The Lord works according to his promises. He works according to his promises revealed in his word and not according to man-made religion or human speculation. Listen, anything other than biblical Christianity is a religious fantasy. Why? Because it's based on human reasoning. It's based on human speculation. It's based on men and women trying to work their way up to God, whereas Christianity is God coming down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not a religion that Buddha came up with, that Muhammad came up with, that, that anyone came up with. It's a religion that's revealed by God in His Word. And the reason I say that in this story or in this uh, psalm, we were like those who dream. When an Israelite thought of dreaming, he didn't think about us, you know, our dreams, nighttime dreams. He probably thought of the prophetic dreams, the dreams that Jeremiah had, 
the dreams that Daniel had, the dreams that Ezekiel had that revealed God's promise to his people that one day I'm going to restore your captivity. The dream that a stone that is Jesus Christ would come down and crush the kingdoms of this world and establish the unshakable kingdom of God. And so my point is this, the reason our redemption... Listen, the reason our redemption is a reality that's better than fantasy is because it's grounded in the promises of God revealed in this book. Amen? And you can mock this book, and you can question this book, and you can say it's filled with errors, and you can say it was written by men, but it was written by men who were over-superintended, guided, and inspired by God Himself and they've tried to burn this book, they've tried to discredit this book, and it's still the number one seller in the world. And that's why you ought to go over there and for five bucks, gobble up the New Testament in a format that I think you will enjoy reading because it will show you the promises of God in the midst of this election. Well, let's move on. Because our redemption is a reality that only God can do, it gets better. Our redemption results in a joy that can't be silenced or denied. Listen, when you are restored and you enter into a relationship, it results in a joy that can't be silenced or denied. I love verses 2 through 3. Look at verses 2 through 3. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. Then even the nations, the unbelieving, hostile nations said, I can't deny it. The Lord has done great things for them. And they're, they're saying, you bet you can't deny it because I can't be silenced. God has done great things and I'm jacked up about it. Hope I'm using that word correctly. Number one, here's what real redemption results in. It results in a deep joy. Their mouth was filled with laughter. Their mouth was filled. That, that, listen, the reason it's in the mouth is because it's deep in the heart. You ever had that kind of joy where you just, it's called a belly laugh. You ever had a belly laugh, right? You know what's fun sometimes if you need to lighten up your family? Say, let's all fake a belly laugh. And pretty soon you'll have real laugh, right? Because it's just a funny thing to do. One of my greatest joys on this planet is to hear my daughter laugh. Now, every parent here knows that you can be in the biggest group of people, but when your kid laughs, you can hear it. Am I right? Yeah, you hear it. And I'm telling you, when I hear her laugh, it says her soul is filled with joy and all is right in the world, and you just get, a, you get jazzed about that. But listen, as God's redeemed people, our mouth should be filled with that kind of deep, abiding joy that says, all is right with my soul. All is right. The storm can be raging. And for some of you, you have storms raging. I have my storms. You have your storms. But you know what? When you're redeemed, even in the storm, you know all's right with your soul. And that brings a joy. Listen, our Heavenly Father takes much greater joy in hearing you enjoy your relationship with Him than I ever do out of hearing Amber laugh. Uh, do you laugh? Do you enjoy your relationship with God? Do you know Jesus today? And if you do, do you have, is that where your joy is? That, is that your deepest joy? And if not, why not? 
I would put forth to you, if that's not your deepest joy, something's wrong in that relationship. Maybe you don't have that relationship. Or maybe sin is so hardening your soul that it, it, it's, it's, it's stopping your, your, your mouth from being filled. So a deep joy, you say, how do I know if I have that deep joy? A deep joy is a loud joy. A deep joy is a loud joy. Not only was their mouth filled with laughter, but their tongue with joyful shouting. You know, one of the things I enjoy uh, really doing in, in leading worship at our church when I get to do it is leading our church in a joyful shout. You know, and, and man, there's power. When we as a congregation do that, you know, one, two, three, God is great, right? Let's do it right now. One, two, three, God is great. Now, let's really shout it. One, two, three, God is great. Man, there's power in that. Do you realize that a loud shout is one of the greatest weapons of spiritual warfare in the Bible? How did Joshua bring down the walls of Jericho? With loud shouts of praise. With loud shouts. Walls come down when we shout with joy. And when you have a deep joy and a loud joy, it becomes, number three, an undeniable joy. It becomes undeniable. Look at verse 2. Then they said among the nations, Wow, we hear it and we see it. Let me ask you today. If God has restored your relationship, if you've been redeemed and born again, do your unsaved co-workers and friends say, we see it, we hear it, it's undeniable. We see it, we hear it, it's undeniable. I had a friend who had came to Christ, a man in our church, and, and he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he, uh, he came to Christ, and he just couldn't help talking about it. But one day... He, he told our, our group, he said, you know, I had a co-worker come up to me and say, you know what, I'd believe you a little more about what Jesus and God can do if you'd quit saying God damn so much, which I just got the biggest kick out of. Biggest kick because he was doing that, biggest kick that he shared that with us, and the, the biggest kick that somebody would actually tell him that. And that's the point. And it was a glorious thing because he said, okay, I get it. I, I can hear that. I can hear that loud and clear. But, you know, I wonder how many unsaved people are around us day to day who are thinking in their mind, you know what, I know you're a Christian. I hear you kind of invite me to church or talk about God, but I sure could believe you a little more if I could see it a little more in your life, if I could hear it. You see, when the Lord's truly redeemed you, forgiven all your sins, transformed your heart, and restored you to a right relationship, lost people around you know because they see it in how you live, they hear it in how you talk, and how you rejoice, not pigeonholing them, not guilting them, not shaming them, but you're, you just have this loud joy in the Lord. And you're like, hey, come, get in on my journey to joy. Well, our redemption results in a deep, loud, undeniable joy because ultimately it's a bold joy, a bold joy. I love how this ends. He says, yeah, you bet God has done great things for me. Why? The Lord has done great things for us. The reason they knew it is because they heard it and they saw it. A bold joy. I know Jesus. I'm glad I know Jesus and I want you to know Jesus. And that brings us to the deepest concern. If that's your greatest joy, knowing Jesus, 
then your deepest concern, the greater your joy, the greater your concern for others to know Him. And so here's our deepest concern. Pleading with God for the final restoration of others in the future. Do you see the connection here? The greater your joy in Jesus, the greater your the deeper your concern. And I promise you, the reason, you know, and I do believe, one of the reasons we don't witness more is fear. But the thing that drives out fear is love and joy. Joy is great. You can't be silenced. It can't be denied. Listen, people can say whatever they want, but your testimony cannot be denied. You know what? You can say that's full, but you know what? God speaks to me through His Word. You know what? You can say prayer doesn't accomplish anything, but I got a whole file cabinet of answered prayer. Right? In other words, when you have that greatest joy is knowing Jesus, it should transfer over into the deepest burden and concern. I want others to get in on this joy. And so I'm going to plead with you, Lord, to bring that final uh, restoration. Therefore, it moves right from we are glad to verse 4, restore our captivity. Now, in four, verses 4 through 6, we see what they're saying is, Lord, do it again. You did it then. You did it for me. Now do it again. Do it again until the end when our joy is fulfilled. So, two ways our greatest joy leads to our deepest concerns. First of all, we pray for the divine miracle. We pray for the divine miracle of people from every unreached people group being redeemed. Listen, when the kingdom's restored, we've already read the end of the book. First of all, we know we win. But when we read the end of the book, we see people from every tribe, nation, and tongue restored around the throne. So, Lord, we pray for a divine miracle. And that divine miracle is pictured in this, this, uh, this simile when it says, Restore our captivity, verse 4, as the streams in the south. Now, we're not talking about our south. We're talking about the south of Jerusalem. The south of Jerusalem was a desert called the Negev. It was a desert. It was a wasteland. And he's saying, hey, restore our captivity like a desert. No, he's saying like streams in the desert. That's what he's saying. Because what happens is in the desert places, rains come like Friday night. We were at the football game. The rains came and the flood came. And I didn't think I was going to, we had kids to take home. I didn't think we were going to get out of there. Uh, Dane, he said he was downtown thanking God he had a truck. Well, Dane, I didn't have a truck, so I just had to thank God for getting me out of here. We had to find a way to get, why? Because when that gush, if that happens in a city, just think in a desert, what happens is the rains come and flash floods come. Now, that can be a dangerous thing, and we've already seen that in previous Psalms. It pictured the overwhelming flood of an enemy, and it was a dangerous thing Friday night. But in a desert, when a big rain comes like that, guess what happens? And maybe you've seen it on the National Geographic channel. All of a sudden, the desert becomes a green oasis. That flood comes, and it's just life springs up. And that which was dry and horrible and no man could change, God does in an instant with a flash flood, and everything's growing and flourishing. That is the picture of redemption. Your soul is dry. It's dust. You can't change it. You're thirsty, you're dry, you're separated from God, and boom! 
God restores your captivity and you go from guilt to a clear conscience. You go from bondage to sin to being able to say no to sin. You go from not knowing your God to knowing your God. Isn't that a glorious thing? That's the picture. Listen, we've got to pray for people to be saved because God is the one that does it. Amen? God's the one that does it. But the second point, the second point is though we pray for the divine miracle, we participate in the human means of everyone going everywhere with the gospel. You see, it's a miracle that God must do, but He uses means to do it. And that's what the rest of the verse says. He says, Lord, you do what only you can do, but you're going to do it through those who sow in tears, who will then reap with joyful shouting, he who goes to and fro. You see, it goes from something that a divine miracle to human means. And so if we're going to get the gospel, and that's what our theme is for our world outreach, everyone to everywhere. Everyone to everywhere. Now, if that's going to happen, we're going to need to understand that getting the gospel here, there, and everywhere requires, first of all, we have a responsibility to fulfill. And secondly, everyone has a role to play, a responsibility to fulfill, and we have a roles that everyone can fulfill. And basically what I gave you is outline of the next six weeks. This is the outline of the next six weeks. Everyone has a responsibility because we have a gospel mandate. Go and make disciples of all peoples. We have a gospel message that says everyone on this planet has bad news they need to hear They're far from God, headed for a Christless eternity, and only Jesus can make a difference. And that's why he's the gospel mediator. There's only one person, one person. We're going to talk about all that. But we also have roles that everyone can fulfill. And we're going to talk about six roles. Some of these roles we've really hit on. A couple of these we haven't ever talked about uh, here at Glenwood. Going and sending... Praying and giving, welcoming and mobilizing. So these next six weeks after Labor Day, it's going to get you ready to put this psalm into action. Because here's the reality. It's a divine miracle, but it happens with weeping, praying and sowing. It happens with going and sending, praying and giving, welcoming and mobilizing. Because here's the reality. Listen to me. Here's the reality. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Everyone's not going to get saved in the end. The Bible doesn't teach inclusivism. You know what inclusivism is? Inclusivism says it's the Christian cop-out. It's the Christian version of universalism. Inclusivism says, well, Jesus is the only Savior, but He's going to save everybody eventually. Jesus is the only way. You're right. But He's going to save everybody eventually. And and the Bible doesn't teach annihilationism, which says no one will suffer forever and eternity because they simply cease to exist. Listen, if all you did was cease to exist, then, hey, you know what? Eat, drink, and be happy. Blow Jesus off. When you die, you cease to exist. But the reality is this. There's eternal suffering, eternal separation, and all these things motivate us to sow with tears knowing that we'll return with rejoicing. Amen? And listen, 
We've got people in this class who have come to Jesus through this class. Who the seed is sown. Carmen is sitting right there. Came up right after me teaching a decade or more ago and saying, is this what this means? That's what it means. You can be born again. Amen, Carmen? Right over there. Right over there. We need more of that. Amen? We need more of that. But it's going to come through praising God. And our greatest joy is knowing I know Jesus. And my deepest concern is I want others to know. Amen? But you got to pray for the miracle. But you got to participate in the means. Participate in the means. Come back after Labor Day. And we're going to delve into that. And we're going to get our hearts ready for the World Outreach Celebration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord knowing that uh, you're one who can turn our captivity into joy. You give us deep, abiding joy. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today that's not sure of where they stand with you, like one time I was that way, and I needed someone to come alongside, answer some questions, point me to Jesus, pray with me, and help me to step across the line. So, Father, I pray that all of us will leave not leave today without knowing for sure at some point today. And I pray, Lord, that our joy, we repent of not having greater joy in you and therefore not having a deeper concern for others. Lord, do it again and then do it again and then do it again until the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look to your neighbor and give him a shout of joy.